0: Guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. The other day, I ordered a stylus for the first time so that I could draw on the screen of this new laptop. And while standing in line to pick up my order at Best Buy, a couple days after Christmas, I noticed over at the customer service desk, there was a long line of people standing with items that were all still sealed in their package, but that also had strips of wrapping paper stuck to the sides. Easy to surmise, I think, that these are returns. And then when I looked in another direction, I noticed there was also a strangely huge number of people, all of them men, who were standing in the equally long checkout line, to buy an enormous TV set. I always figured that the days after Christmas would be big at major retailers because people are exchanging gifts, but it hadn't occurred to me to sort of take that a step farther and to see that what people might be doing more specifically is returning a gift that they didn't particularly want, getting store credit, and then applying that store credit to a larger gift that they're getting for themselves. And as I saw all of these dudes buying enormous TV sets on which they probably got big discounts, whether it's an after Christmas sale of the store trying to purge some extra inventory or it's the store credit that they got from returning a gift they didn't want. Nonetheless, they're probably spending hundreds if not thousands of dollars on these TVs. And it made me wonder, is a gift of that size Something that they would naturally get for themselves. You know, like it was on the agenda to pick one up and any day that they saw a sale, they were gonna turn up at Best Buy and get one. Or is it that they're here and they're still swept up in the spirit of the holiday that says, go ahead, indulge yourself, go big, trade up. Wondering, in other words, if at at the end of the Christmas season, after you've come close to bankrupting yourself in an effort to get gifts for all of your loved ones, it's not kind of natural that there's maybe some petulant or just perfectly entitled voice in your chest that says, what about me? Robert Wide, I think I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. He's one of the co-creators of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I finally got around to watching a documentary that he's been working on for about 40 years. It's called Unstuck in time. And it's a portrait of his favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut, and also a portrait of their friendship. There's some really sexist remark that was applied to Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if it came from the documentary, but someone said that as soon as Vonnegut got rich and famous, he traded his old wife for the newer model. The reason that line has stayed with me is because it seems to be true of every one of those major post-war American male novelists, that they would struggle a long time in anonymity, they would try to get published and fail and fail and fail, and then when they finally did get published it maybe took a little while longer before they started getting taken seriously and making enough money to subsist. But as soon as they hit all three of those checkpoints, they seemed to uniformly abandon a wife who had stood by them and helped them to succeed. Now that all those guys from that generation are dead, we can look at their biographies and we can see how much they really did come to regret it. Or if not to explicitly regret it and tell people that they regretted it, you can see that they ended up leading lives with their subsequent wives that ended up lacking so much of the magic that enabled their earlier more inspired output. Vonnegut's case was especially bad because Jill Cremens kind of came to, like, despise him, is the impression you get from some biographical sketches. Vonnegut was really, really ornery in his old age, Um, unless there there was a gap of, like, 20 years between them. Here's a strange irony about Kurt Vonnegut's life that I've never heard anyone talk about, probably because it's in really poor taste. We know that the defining episode of Kurt Vonnegut's life was his experience in World War II. He was captured by the Nazis, he was held as a prisoner of war in the German city of Dresden, which was known for being so beautiful and modern and artsy, and amazing architecture. Vonnegut and the other POWs were kept underground in a slaughterhouse, it was Slaughterhouse Five, and that's where they were hidden out. That's where they were kept safe when the Allies perpetrated sort of a genocide by firebombing the city. They dropped so many bombs and so many incendiary weapons. The bombing of Dresden actually created a fire tornado. It created an actual weather system. It ripped the town to shreds. People who were outside, when bombing began, they found the heat so unbearable that they ran and they started jumping into fountains, not realizing that the fountains were all boiling. Once it was over, the Nazis brought the POWs out from the Slaughterhouse basement and made them go out into the city and clean up the bodies. It's estimated now that about 25,000 people died in the attack. So Vonnegut survives the war, he goes back to the States and he he writes a few books, nothing really splashy, until he finally finishes his war memoir called Slaughterhouse Five. The only way he ended up getting it done was to not do a memoir. He turned it into a science fiction novel where there's a time traveler who I think is a scientist and alien aliens capture him and then the aliens witness the bombing. Anyways, about 30 years after that experience in the war, Vonnegut was sitting in his third floor writing studio one day it must have been a sunday because he was watching the super bowl and he was smoking a cigarette and he was ashing his cigarette into a waste paper basket while sitting in his reading chair it was a very deep and comfortable reading chair and we know it was very deep and comfortable because he promptly fell asleep the cigarette fell from his fingers dropped into the basket started a big fire and burned the whole house down bonnegut barely survived and he ended up spending weeks in recovery at his daughter's house, recovering from, of all things, smoke inhalation which is technically the bad habit that got his house burned down in the first place if i remember correctly that that fire and that rescue ends up being kind of a turning point in his marriage and it seems to be a trauma from which vonnegut never really recovers he turns into a curmudgeon and becomes kind of alienating and sad just seems like an interesting sad symmetry that his career kind of took off as a result of a firestorm in which he found himself and then the joyous part of that career seems to have kind of ended once he found himself caught in yet another fire. Vonnegut was one of the few writers of that generation to retire. Like, quote-unquote, capital R, full stop, retire. That was his intention. It ended up not working out that way. He released a few more books, and then, when Vonnegut died, he became really prolific. Because the Vonnegut estate decided, I think, that they were going to wring every penny out of his body of work that they could there There have probably been about ten books by Kurt Vonnegut in like the fifteen years since he died, which is way more prolific than he ever was in life. But Philip Roth did the same thing, but Philip Roth went on to do the same thing about ten years later to announce his re- to announce his retirement from writing novels. He said he was just going to spend his waning years writing about books and writing notes to his biographer. The notion of retirement has all the notion of retirement has always been either anomaly or anathema for writers usually cuz they're poor or if they're not poor they're just like really bad with money. I'm not sure if this is true, but I read on Wikipedia this week that Zane Grey, that Zane Grey was the first novelist to ever become a millionaire. He wrote westerns from like the 1890s I think into the 1930s. His most famous novel though is Riders of the Purple Sage, which sounds a lot like Sellers of the Flower Moon. Now that I think about it, and they're both westerns, so that probably was intentional. I'm not sure if this is true either, but since I'm apparently keen to repeat and everything i hear martin scorsese had a daughter when he was in his 60s and allegedly he raised her only on the entertainments or mostly on the entertainments of his own youth old black and white or silent movies from the first half of the 20th century and they had this whole rapport about it it was like their private language and then one day when she was like eight years old she said dad what are all these actors doing today and scorsese had to tell her that every single actor she had ever loved was dead. Speaking of millionaire writers, uh, here's a passage of Martin Amis' profile from 1986 of the writer Anthony Burgess, who was insanely prolific. Uh, once, when, Once when he was told wrongly that he had a brain tumor, he wrote five novels in a year. But th- at this point, like 30 years or 35 years after his death, I think he's only remembered for A Clockwork Orange. Amos is interviewing him, and Burgess says, Oh, I've been technically a millionaire for some time now. It doesn't make much difference to anything after a point. One still minds. For instance, I take it you're paying for this lunch? Remarkably, Burgess's steady elevation has never affected his appetite for routine journalistic work. I refuse no reasonable offer of work, he wrote in 1978, and very few of the unreasonable ones. Martin Amos' death in the last year, 2023, really shocked and bummed me out. I think he was only 71. And what makes it sadder is he died of the same horrible, grueling illness that killed his best friend, Christopher Hitchens, just just like a decade prior. And another weird irony is that he had just finished chronicling that horrible, grueling death in a book that came out a couple of years ago called Inside Story, which is basically an autobiography disguised as a novel, but it's also a masterpiece. There's a harrowing part of that book, Inside Story, where Amos is musing on the where Amos, is recount- where Amos is recounting details from the decline and ultimately the death of Saul Bellow. Saul Bellow died of Alzheimer's. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he was Martin Amos's hero before they met, and then he w- they met, and he became Amos's mentor for like 30 years. Bellow was in his 80s when Alzheimer's took hold, and Amos writes about this... This time that he was, he went to visit Bello at his house, and there was Bello in the living room, and he was watching Pirates of the Caribbean on DVD. It was like his hundredth time watching it, but he thought it was the first, and he just sat there all day watching it on loop over and over, and he was staring at the screen with like this squinty, haunted expression, as if this was all very exciting, very disturbing, and and vaguely familiar. Meanwhile, his wife, 40 years younger, stood chewing her nails in the kitchen, handing to all of his needs. Every now and then I go on a riff and realize how much of this morbid shit I read. Um, Probably don't have to be so mired in it as I am, but it is the kind of thing you have to confront eventually. As Bellow himself once wrote, death is the dark backing a mirror needs before we can see anything.